Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Our speaker today is Dr. Ed Webking. He grew up in the western U.S., went to Pepperdine, got his M.A. in government at California State University, and his Ph.D. in government at Claremont. He was a professor at the University of Lethbridge since 1973. He is president of Alberta Civil Liberties Research Center and received the Alberta Human Rights Award in 1994. He is retired now, but remains deeply interested in politics of the U.S., human rights, and international law. Please welcome our speaker, Dr. Webking. Well, Dr. Webking, the floor is yours for the next 25, 30 minutes. Now, I understand that for today only, they're making an exception about the money, and the money is to go to the speaker today. <laughs> uh, I left, I had a handout distributed. Uh, and uh, it shows the, um, it's a chart that shows the difference between the American system of government and the British or the parliamentary system. There are, as you probably know, uh, in research, uh, we always talk about models, and the model for the separation of powers and the presidential system is the United States, and the model for the concentration of powers and the parliamentary system is Great Britain, of which the Canadian system is based. So I ha you can, I, hopefully you could be able to make notes on, whatever, on those sheets, and uh, I will try and, and uh, follow or, or base much of what I have to say on those two sheets. Uh, so hopefully this will help you in... Uh, being able to understand <clears throat> what I want to say. Um, I want to make, uh, when the, uh, when the, you know, after the Declaration of Independence, the United States, the nascent United States, was governed by what was called the Continental Congress. And this Congress was in effect until about 17 of 1779, seven, seven, no, I'm sorry, up until the end of the Revolutionary War. And uh, then the country was organized 
around the uh, what were called the Articles of Confederation, and the Articles of Confederation were in effect from about 1781 to about 1790, 1791. Um, and then uh, the, these articles proved ineffective, and so a constitutional conference was called, and uh, delegates were elected by the state legislatures, and they all met in um, Philadelphia, and there the Constitution was drafted and, uh, and finalized. Um, the Constitution of the United States is about 4,500 words. It covers, in a textbook, it covers about six pages in all, on eight and a half by 11. Um, it is perhaps one of the longest-serving constitutions. It's not the longest constitution in the world. One of the longer constitutions is, for example, India. The Indian constitution is oh, oh, almost about five or 600 pages um, and uh, is much more detailed. The American constitution is, is characterized by its brevity, uh, which many think is part of its virtue. Um, now, uh, just a little bit of historical background. The, 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 the country <clears throat> was colonized by the British, and they were governed by um, the British until the Declaration of Independence. Um, there were such things as the Boston Tea Party and the Paul Revere Ride and all those other sorts of things, which are interesting but not necessarily necessary to understand the, the way the system works. Um, and uh, the, uh, the, the people that gathered in Philadelphia were a remarkable set of individuals. Um, they all had what would amount to higher education. Uh, many had been educated in, in Great Britain. Um, some had attended what is now Princeton and Columbia University in, in the colonies. Um, the, uh, they were characterized by such people as uh, Benjamin Franklin, James Madison. Uh, when the Constitution was written, it was sent out to the various states for ratification, and conventions were to be called in each of the states uh, for ratification purposes. And the key state, there were several key states. One was uh, New York, the other was Virginia, and uh, Massachusetts. The, uh, uh, there was a, a wonderful debate that took place in New York um, by what is called the Federalists. And uh, these were Madison, Hamilton, and John Jay. And uh, th what they did, they wrote a series of newspaper articles uh, and pamphlets, which were published all throughout New York to try and influence the convention to ratify the Constitution. Now, all of these, what these are called now are the Federalist Papers. And the Federalist Papers are, whoops, look like this. And uh, the best edition is the one I have. It's by Jacob Cook, 
and it's the most authoritative in terms of attributing what number was written by whom. Uh, so if you get, want to know anything about American political science, American constitutionalism, I recommend that you read the Federalist Papers. Uh, and uh, Jefferson is often uh, mentioned as, uh, as a part of the Constitution. Jefferson was not at the Constitutional Convention. He was ambassador to France for the government at the time, the Articles of Confederation Government, the Confederate Congress, and although he wrote letters to individual members of the convention, he was not an active participant in the uh, convention. He did his job with the um, Declaration of Independence, which he wrote at the ripe old age of 23. Uh, what have we done <laughs> equally important at 23? Uh, anyway, after the Revolutionary War, the country was governed by this, by this Confederate Congress. And um, it was a week or so, it was really um, a, a, a sort of an association of states. There was no strong executive. Um, everything was done by the Congress, but everything had to be approved by the states. And so it was a matter of hassling, hassled all the time. And so when, the, uh, when the, uh, it became obvious that this form of government wasn't going to work and they had to form some other kind of government, a call went out for the Constitutional Convention. And um, so the guys that met in Philadelphia were, uh, as I say, the cream of American political thought uh, and in intellectual thought of, of the time. Uh, all were highly educated. Um, they ranged in age from Alexander Hamilton, who was in his 20s, to Benjamin Franklin, who was 81, I believe, at the time of the convention. Um, these guys were remarkable people, um, and uh, it's, it's unfortunate that the United States hasn't had a collection of like minds since. Um, if they had, they wouldn't be in the difficulty they're in now. Um, so uh, a lot is, uh, often people are Often people in the states and, and, and I think inexperienced observers of the convention or the Constitution often think about Moses and the burning bush, that these guys went before a burning bush and God or somebody spoke to them and that's how they got the Constitution. Well, if the Constitution is based on practical experience. Um, they had all been through these, the, the revolution They'd been through the Articles of Confederation, and uh, the main thing that they were concerned about in Philadelphia was power, the, the control and the distribution of power in the government. And so you have a, a several principles that emerged. One is what we call the separation of powers, where the executive and legislative powers are executed by different bodies, but 
It's a little bit more complicated than that because you can, you can, if you look at it very carefully, you will see that all three branches, executive, legislative, and judicial, exercise powers that are assigned to the other, three, the other two branches. So the president has legislative powers, functions. He has executive functions. He has judicial functions. Same with the Congress. The Congress is made up of the House of Representatives, the Senate, and then you have the Supreme, the court system. And the United States has a dual court system, federal courts and then state courts. And uh, there's two different levels of courts, and both operate directly upon the people. Now, one of the major changes that came out of the Constitutional Convention was that instead of the government acting upon the states, the government was to have powers directly over the people. So in the United States, the people, the citizens of the country ha are, are, are responsible to state governments and also to federal government. So there are two levels of power over which the citizens of the United States are, resp are responsible to. And um, uh, so uh, when they met at Philadelphia, the, the, the problem was what to do about this power. So they did the separation of powers and what is called checks and balances. The checks and balances comes in where, as I just mentioned, all three branches can muck around in each other's ass assignment of powers. So no one branch has exclusive executive, legislative, or judicial. All three branches have all three responsibilities. And so this is how they managed to, uh, to uh, deal with this, this, the question of power. Now, um, as you, if you want to uh, uh, look at this, um, it shows the uh, it shows the uh, uh, how the government is organized. The president, you have the president, and uh, the box indicates that um, his checks and balances are, for example, that he has powers over Congress. He can veto legislation. However, the legislation, his veto can be overturned by a two-thirds vote in the House and in the Senate. So even though the president has the right to veto, it isn't a permanent veto. He can't block legislation indefinitely. It can be overturned. And so also the president is responsible for appointing cabinet officials. He appoints the judges to the federal courts. These officials are approved by the Senate, so the president's appointment powers are shared with the Senate. He doesn't have exclusive appointment powers. This is how his checks and balance things work. And so then you have, uh, you have the courts, which are, out, which are outlined in Article 3 of the Constitution, and um, it... Uh, uh, although the, the Constitution didn't provide 
for the Supreme Court to overturn acts of Congress or to declare them unconstitutional, they acquired that right in a very famous case involving James Madison, who was Secretary of State at the time. And um, uh, this, this case set out. James Marshall was the Chief Justice, and in this, in this important case uh, involving Madison, uh, the Supreme Court set out uh, the, the regulation that it had the right to overturn laws of Congress. And although this was debated, it was never challenged. The only way to have modified it would have been to have passed a specific amendment to the Constitution. Nobody did, and so the, the courts acquired this right to declare laws of Congress unconstitutional. Um, now, uh, laws that are declared unconstitutional can be, can be introduced into Congress again and passed by a two-thirds majority, and then the, the, the court decision is overturned. So even the courts do not have the final word necessarily. And uh, some decisions of the court have been set aside by subsequent legislation passed by both houses of Congress. Then you have the Congress of the the the, uh, the Constitution. The section dealing with the Congress is the longest section in the Constitution. Um, the men at Philadelphia felt that the greatest abuses were likely to come from the legislature. And this was because they went through this period, this interim period between the Revolution and the Constitution, where um, states in the sta uh, 13 states, many states passed legislation nullifying debt, outlawing debt, um, all kinds of crazy things were done by the state legislatures. And uh, this was appalling. And there were several, there were a number of rebellions that developed uh, during this period. Shays Rebellion was one, and there were several others. And so they had to go to George Washington. He wasn't president yet, but they had to go and drag him out of Mount Vernon and head up an army to put down various kinds of small rebellions that developed in some of the states. And so you have this man who had fought the revolution victoriously, uh, was now armed, arming ahead of an army, fighting his own people in various states because of these popular rebellions that developed. And so um, this experience led them to then uh, be more specific about the powers of the Congress. And so the, the powers of Congress are outlined uh, in the uh, Article I of the Constitution, and um, they divided the powers between the House of Representatives and the Senate. Originally, the Senate was elected by the state legislatures. The senators are now popularly elected by the, United, by the citizens, of the states in which they reside. Um, there are 50 senators, I'm sorry, 100 senators, two for each state, 
and there are now 435 members of the House. They capped the House numbers back in the early part of the 20th century. Um, and so you can see the powers of the Congress then. They can override the presidential veto, but as I said, that, that's not the end of it. Uh, Congress has the power to impeach. Impeach means to uh, try an individual in the government for malfeasance or whatever crime he or she's committed. Um, they have control of the purse. All revenue bills have to originate in the House. Um, they have um, the Senate confirms appointments, which I've already mentioned, and also the Senate approves treaties. The president has power to make treaties, but those treaties have to be approved by the Senate. Um, they also, the Congress also has power over the courts in that they can fix the responsibility of a court, what power it has, what power it doesn't have. They can add courts. They, uh, they approve the appointment of the justices to the Supreme Court. Justices serve for life. Uh, the bottom of that uh, uh, graph shows um, how they further diffuse things in the American system. You've got the House of Representatives, two-year terms, but they can be reelected for any number of times. You've got people in the House who have served for over 50 years in a number of instances. In the Senate, they have six-year terms. Um, there's no limit on the number of terms, but one-third of the Senate is elected every two years. So whereas the House is elected at once in an election, the Senate is elected one-third every two years. And again, this was to prevent a, 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 uh, a takeover by a faction somehow. And so by splitting the terms and having only a third elected every two years, it's impossible for an individual faction or organization to gain control of the Senate. Whereas it might be possible in the House, it isn't in the Senate. And um, uh, so, uh, and senators serve for six years. Judges serve for life. The president has two terms, two four-year terms. Um, it, was, uh, it was originally af uh, just after Roosevelt uh, was president, they passed the constitutional amendment uh, uh, keeping the presidential terms to two years. Um, and again, all of this was to, to control power and to diffuse it in such a way that no one branch or group in the government could gain control of the government through election or whatever. And again, this was based on their experience. It wasn't divine revelation, but it was based on actual experience that these guys went through. Um, it wasn't necessarily a democratic process either because it was only men and only propertied individuals. Women couldn't vote, and if you didn't have 
land, if you didn't have property, you couldn't vote. So it was a, it was a very ex- exclusive group of people. But uh, as, many, as many writers have noted, these people were infused with the ideals of democracy um, and had done their research. Um, they were familiar with, uh, with uh, Greece and, and uh, with all the other federations and confederations that had developed over time and, and their experience. And so out of this came the kind of document that governs the United States. Now, um, what comes along and sort of mucks this picture up are political parties. Political parties did not exist at the time of the Constitution. Um, There were two groups that formed uh, during the debate over the Constitution, uh, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. The Federalists believed the Constitution should be adopted. The Anti-Federalists thought that it gave too much power to the national government and, uh, oh, yeah, the other thing was that it didn't have a Bill of Rights. Uh, but the writers of the Constitution promised that at the first session of Congress, they would pass a Bill of Rights. And so states that were on the fence about adopting this Constitution went over to the approved side when they got the assurances that a Bill of Rights would be approved. And uh, so... Uh, uh, after the first Congress uh, came into existence, the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments to the Constitution was a package deal, and all ten amendments went through, and we now have what is called the Bill of Rights. Although I suspect the average American doesn't know what the bill contains. I mean, they know... They know the... The, the one thing they do know... Which is the worst? Which is the most misunderstood one? Is the right to bear arms. <laughs> anyway, there are the last I, the last statistic I saw was that there are about sixty-five million handguns in the hands of the United States citizens now, presently. This doesn't count rifles and anti-tank weapons and. Uh, all kind, I mean, bazookas and God knows what else. Uh, I mean, many, many, many houses in the United States are miniature armories in some cases, and uh, it's uh, it can be it can be pretty frightening. Um, I lived in Alaska for a number of years, and um, was uh, a, le- a, a spokesperson for the anti-war movement during the Vietnam War and also a spokesperson for gun control. Uh, I, don't know what you, I don't know if you know anything about the North and about Alaska or the Yukon or whatever, but um, <clears throat> one isn't particularly popular uh, taking a stand against guns, and I wasn't particularly popular during the Vietnam War because 55% of the Alaska income came from the military. Um, I uh, I had uh, FBI agents in my class. I didn't know about it at the time, but I found out later. My house phone was capped uh, by the FBI. And uh, anyway, it was um, 
it was a bad time for many people during the Vietnam War and, and also any talk about gun control. Um, so political parties came into existence around the uh, early part of the 19th century. Um, and uh, there were a number, the, the, the political parties as we know them today, the Democrats and the Republicans, didn't really emerge until probably just before the Civil War. Lincoln was the first Republican president. Uh, he only ran as a Republican once. When he, was, when he ran for re-election in 1864, he ran on what was called the Union Ticket. And this was because of the Civil War and the desire to have the states reunited and so on. Um, and the Democrats were uh, formed uh, under Jefferson in about 1802, 1804, somewhere around there. Um, they were originally called the Democratic Republicans, but they later dropped the Republican and have simply been called the Democrats ever since. Um, now, um, one would assume two parties, right? No. There are four. Two re, uh, there are four parties, Republican and Democrat. You have a presidential party, a congressional party, you have a state's party, and a national party. Then at the state level, you have various parties as well. So there are well over. 104, 105, even more than that perhaps, of parties in the United States. Parties have no discipline. There's no way you can force a member of the party to vote any particular way. They're, they feel their responsibility is to their constituency first, their party last. Unlike here, we know how the party relationship is here. And so this leads to all kinds of mucking around. And this leads to the kind of situation we have now where it's difficult for anybody in the United States to place responsibility on any government agency or person because it's all divided up. And no one knows who to blame, who to approve of, or whatever. And so you have the kind of oh, stew that exists now in the United States where it's difficult to know who does what, to whom, by whom, when, or however. Any questions, you can throw at me later, okay? I've just given you a brief outline. This topic, I could lecture on American politics for a week. <laughs> Continuously. <laughs> Um, because it's a fascinating topic, but I've given you an outline, and I hope this will help you develop questions, and uh, we can answer, we can have a discussion afterwards. Thank you very much.